Well, good morning. How about before we go to the, the word of the Lord, let's go once more to him in prayer. Father, we come before you and you have heard our prayers. You have heard our praises. And now we come and we want to hear from you. Father, we pray that you might you might move through your word this morning as we come and, and we hear this, this section of Scripture that, that magnifies you and your Son, Jesus. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and, and hearts to believe and minds to understand your word. We pray, Father, that you would, you would help us to, to believe your promises and to trust you who are able to, to keep us from, from stumbling and able to present us before your glorious presence, blameless. We pray that this morning, that your word would, it would search our hearts, that your spirit would, would convict us of sin and encourage us in areas that we need it. And Father, that you might be magnified in our time together. So Father, I pray that you would remove all that is me and that you would simply speak to us this morning from your holy word. We pray this in the name of the living Lord Jesus. Amen. So how do you respond to someone who makes you a promise? When somebody makes a promise to you, does your, does your heart get excited or are you usually a little bit skeptical? Now, the response to a promise probably has a lot to do with the one who's, who's making the promise, all right? So if, let's say there's a, a presidential candidate who says that he, he promises to, to balance the budget and to increase the number of jobs and to rid all of government systems from corruption. How would your heart respond? Lots of hopeful expectation or a little bit of skepticism, maybe? What about, if, uh, what about your favorite football team, maybe the Redskins? Let's say, let's say Dan Snyder trades a whole bunch of first-round picks to get the quarterback. And then spends millions of dollars to get a bunch of free agents to come in and then promises a Super Bowl. Have you heard that one before? Well, how, how, would, your, how would your heart respond to, to that kind of promise? Or more seriously, how about if, if you and your spouse were out on a date night and, and they pulled out a copy of the vows that you made on, on your wedding day to one another? And... You guys reread them together and you heard your spouse promise you that they would continue to, to love you for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in, in health or in sickness. What would that, what would that do for, for your heart? I, I hope it would incline it to, to, to more love and, and deeper trust. Well, how about when, how about when God makes a promise? How does, how does your heart respond when, when God makes a promise to you? Is your, is your love for Him stirred up? Is it warmed? Is your, is your hope renewed? When God says that He will do something, does it inspire faith in you to trust Him and to, to praise Him? Because you actually think that the God who makes these promises to you is going to be faithful to keep them. How does your heart respond to the promises of God? Well, this morning as we finish our series in the book of Jude, we're going to be studying a few of God's magnificent promises that are intended to make our hearts trust Him more and to praise Him as He is worthy to be praised. So if you aren't there already, join me in the book of Jude. Book of Jude, second to last book of your New Testament, right before the book of Revelation. And join me now, uh, following along as I read verses 24 and 25. To him who is able to keep you from falling or stumbling, and to present you before his glorious presence, without fault and with great joy, To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, 
and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. These verses are in the form of what's commonly called a a doxology. A doxology is is simply a a call or a response to to God um, in in regards to to praise. We we praise God for for who He is or something that He's done or something that He he promises to do. So in this this doxology here, these last two verses, you, you, you may notice that it's, it's addressed both to us and to the Lord. Notice there, to Him who is able to keep you, to present you to the only God, our Savior. In this section of Scripture, there are, there are promises for us and there are praises for God. Now, to help us think more clearly about these promises and, and what it means to respond with a heart of praise, in our time together this morning, we're going we're to consider three primary questions. Three questions about these, these promises and this, this praise. They are, who is this promise-making God? Who is this promise-making God? Secondly, what are the promises that God makes? What are the promises that God makes? And then finally, how should we respond to God's promises? How should we respond to God's promises? So those are our three questions. We're going to work through them uh, straight out of our text this morning. So let's do the first one. Who is this promise-making God? Look again in our text. This God is described as the one, as him who is able. To him who is able. The scriptures say that the That the God who makes promises is the one who is able to keep them. This means that that the God who who gives his word and gives his spirit and gives promises to his people is is not like some some fickle child or some over-promising politician or some incompetent associate. Rather, verse 25 tells us that these words come from the only God, our Savior, Through Jesus Christ our Lord. The one who makes these promises is the one true God. The one who is able. So he's the same one who is able to speak into existence everything that is. He's the same one that was able to, to call down a flood that filled the whole earth in Noah's days. He is the same God who was able to open the the 90-year-old womb of Sarah so that she could conceive the promised child that uh, that God foretold to to Abraham. He is the same one who was able to deliver Israel out of Egypt through his powerful plagues. He's the same one who was able to, to command the Red Sea to stand at attention while God's people marched through unharmed with Pharaoh's army pressing down. This is the same God who was able to defeat the great Goliath by the rock of a shepherd boy. It's the same God who was able to to use nations like we use spoons to be able to both discipline and then deliver His people during the exile. It's that God, the one who is able. The same God who is able and was able to conceive the living Lord Jesus in the womb of the Virgin Mary so that the sinless Savior could come into the world and then work mighty miracles to prove that He had the authority to do what He claimed that He could do, which was to forgive sins. That same Jesus who went to a cross and died for our sins, well, it's that same God who was able to raise Jesus from the dead, victorious over sin, Satan, and death. It's that same God who does all of those things who makes these promises to us this morning. This is not some weak God. This is the all-powerful, all-glorious, all-able God. He is worthy to be praised and worthy to be trusted. He is that God. 
And I, I don't know about you, but, but as, we, as we hear just about that amazing power of our God, I, I pray that it does for you what it did for me this week as I was thinking about it. Because we live in a world, and the longer you live in this world, you become well aware of the fact that everything else that we can lean on or hope in or trust in is eventually going to disappoint us. Everything else in this world will fail you. Everything will. That means that, that our boss, believe it or not, will disappoint us sometimes. Or if you, if you finally buy that brand new car, it's eventually going to break down. Or if you get that cool new cell phone that can brew your coffee or whatever else it can do, it's still going to drop some calls for you. And eventually, it's going to get outdated. Your beloved sports team will eventually lose. Your players will get old and they'll retire. And then they'll sue the NFL. That's what they'll do. They will fail you. Your government, it will never be able to fix the world. Our best friends, they will let us down. Our, our parents, no matter how much they love us, will fail us. Our children will break our hearts. Our spouses even will hurt us. Even even God's people, the church, they will let us down. But we have to know that there is one because He is able and because He is good and because He is faithful who will never leave us or forsake us. Who will never disappoint us. Because He is able. And God has the patience and the strength, and the compassion, and the authority to do what He says He will do. The God who makes promises is the God who is able to keep promises. That's who He is. And all of the promises He will keep, none of them are sweeter than the ones that lead us to call Him, verse 25, our Savior. You see those words there? God is referred to as our Savior. For those who have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, this is, how we, this is how we think about God. He is our, He's our Savior. You see, we were born into sin. We were enslaved by sin. We served sin. We loved our sin. And we were deceived by our sin whether it was through a mask of, of moral self-righteousness or whether we, we put on a parade of perversion in our lives. Whatever it looked like, we were deceived by sin and we lived in sin. That's, that's our state naturally apart from God. And what that sin did was it, it tricked us. It deceived us into thinking that everything was okay and that we could keep going the way that we were going and, and nothing, nothing bad would ultimately happen. Because God didn't strike me dead right now that things were cool. But that's a lie. Because the reality is, all the while, while we were deceived, sin was leading us straight to death. Just like a cow being led to the slaughter, or a bug being lured to a spider's web, our end in our sin was death. It was death. But God... But God, who is rich in mercy and rich in love, with the great love that He loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, He sent His Son, Jesus, to come and, 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 and to die for our sins. God is our Savior. How? Through Jesus Christ our Lord is what the text says. This Jesus came as the Christ. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's his, it's his office. He is Jesus the Christ, which means he's the one that fulfills all of the promises of the Old Testament. He came to do that. And then he died on the cross in the place of sinners, and then he rose from the dead, and now he's ascended to be at the right hand of God the Father as the Lord over all. So he is Savior and he is Lord, and what he does now as the king of his kingdom, he issues a message that goes to the ends of the earth that proclaims that if anyone will turn away from their treason against this almighty king, that because of what Christ has done in his shed blood and his resurrection, for any who will turn from their rebellions, that he will pardon their transgressions. And he will receive them 
as his children into his kingdom. And they will have peace with the God who otherwise would have judged them. That is our God. He saves us from our sin through Jesus Christ. And many of us in this room, we believe that. When we think about who God is, we think that He is the able one and He is the saving one. Many of us in here believe that. Many of us are banking our entire lives and all of our eternity desti- eternal destiny on that. But I want to say this morning that if, if you are here and you know, listen, I, I, I'm just a church. I'm just, doing, I'm, just, I'm just here, all right? I'm, I'm not a Christian. I, I hear what you're saying. It may or not, may not be true. If you know yourself not to be a Christian, I want to I plead with you this morning to consider that this God who we are speaking about, this Jesus who we are speaking about, that He is indeed who He says that He is. That He is able and willing to save even the worst of sinners, even you and even me. That's who He is. And I would, I would call you to believe in Him. And when I, when I say believe in Jesus, I don't mean like believe like you believe in George Washington. Yeah, I believe he was the first president, but that doesn't do squat to your day. Rather, when you become a Christian and you believe in Jesus, it changes everything. We no longer live for ourselves, but now we, re, we live for Him. That's what it means to be a Christian, is that we, we believe, we trust, we turn from our sin, and we cling to Him in faith. If you know yourself not to be a Christian this morning, I, I plead with you to consider this Jesus. Before you leave, have conversations with, with any of us standing around or me or anybody at the doors. We would love to talk to you more about what it means to be a follower of this, this God. So who is this promise-making God? He is the able one, and he is the Savior. That's, that's who he is. But when, when God calls someone to, to believe in Jesus, and they they believe and they are saved, that's not the end of the story. But rather, God promises even more for them. And that brings us to our our second question. What are the promises that God makes? So what are the promises that God makes? Well, as as you search through the scriptures, you find all kinds of promises that God, God makes to his people. But the text that we're looking at this morning gives two of what, what I consider two of the most, most wonderful promises in, in really all of the scriptures. Look again at verse 24 where we find both of these promises. Verse 24 says, To him who is able to keep you from falling, or to keep you from stumbling, and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. These verses give us two promises. Promises that, that one, God will preserve us from falling, and secondly, that he will present us without fault. That's his, that's his promises. He will preserve us and he will present us. So let's, let's look at both of those, those promises uh, on their own. So first, God promises to preserve us from falling. God And listen, I know some of y'all are hurting this morning. Hear this word from the Lord. Do not not blow off. This is not just an idle word, the scripture says. This This is our very life. He is able to keep you from falling. That's what he, he promises to do it right there in verse 24. To him who is able to keep you from falling or from stumbling. Because contrary to what many people teach today both in churches and on TV, when someone becomes a Christian, that does not mean that the trials and the temptations of this life stop coming. That's just not true. It's not true at all. In fact, the reality is that oftentimes when we, when we follow after Christ and we set our hearts to say, listen, Lord, I am yours and I'm going after you with all of my life, that sometimes we find that the trials and the temptations even seem to increase there are still hurts, and there are still pains, and there are still disappointments that can, can blindside us and seek to, to take our legs out from under us so that we might stumble and fall away from Christ. In the years that I've, 
I've been a Christian, and that I've served as a pastor. I have, I have seen countless examples of, of these things that come at us under God's sovereign control, but, but they come at us and, and seek, to, seek to knock us off course and seek to call us away from, from trusting in, in the Lord. Last night as I was reflecting on, on some of these, these friends, I thought of, of, of a couple friend of mine who, who had a son, who they, they loved this son and they cared for him and they gave him everything they could, but, but he, he turned away from them and he turned away from the Lord and he broke their hearts and he went off into to a crazy life that ended up getting him in jail for a number of years. And as I watched what that did to them, how it, it broke their hearts and it, it strained their faith, I was well aware that this world is, it is a fallen world. But God, God kept them from falling. And he's keeping them from falling even now. I thought also of a, of a pastor friend of mine who as he and his wife um, were trying to grow a family, God gave them uh, several kids, but in the midst of it, they had nine miscarriages. Nine miscarriages. That, that back and forth between joy of celebration that we're going to have a baby. We've been praying for this. And then, no more. Nine times. And to watch the way that, that that made them weary in this most intimate of areas. The evil one sought to destroy them. But God, he kept them from stumbling. I thought of two dear sister friends of mine who loved their husbands and were faithful to their husbands, faithful to the Lord, not perfect people, but they sought the Lord's face, who both of their husbands decided to leave them and their children to go find somebody new. And they watched the way that, that they had these questions about, why would God let this happen? And, and watched the evil one just attack them as their heart goes out from them and it breaks their heart. But God... God has kept them from stumbling. We could right now go around this room and we could list thing after thing after thing and testimony after testimony of ways that we have, have been tempted to, to quit trusting the Lord because hard things have, have come at us. Some of us have been persecuted. Some of us have been slandered. Some of us are battling just the, the, the loneliness that comes with singleness. Or some of us have health issues or, or, or jobless or hopeless or enslaved to pornography. Or there's eating disorders or difficult marriages or countless other things. But what, what I want you to hear this morning is that the God who makes these promises says He is able to keep even you, and even me, no matter what burdens are heaped upon us, He is able to keep us from falling. He is able. This promise that, that God is able to keep you from falling, I want you to notice there the word keep. That word keep that's used in the text there, it's the same word that it means to guard something closely or to keep, to keep watch over it intently. It's the same word that's used in Acts chapter 12 when Herod got fed up with Peter preaching the gospel and he brought Peter in and he put four sets of guards to keep him from getting away. It's that same kind of idea, except here on the, the positive end, that God is guarding us. He's keeping us. He's got His, his all-powerful and all-able arms around us to keep us from stumbling and to keep us from, from falling. This past week, I attended the, the funeral of a friend of mine, a friend of, of many of, of you in this church, a dear sister named Marlene. I met Marlene and, and her husband Mark several years ago when I first visited um, Washington, D.C. in Capitol Hill Baptist Church. And, and I remember I went over to lunch at their house and I sat down with them and we shared a meal and right afterwards we sat down and they shared with me that, that they had just discovered that, that the cancer that had previously been in her body had, had come back. 
And, and you could see that they had, they had faith, but it was, it, was, it was a weighty thing. And over the next couple of years, I've had the opportunity to watch Mark and Marlene walk through this together and to watch the way that, that Marlene, even in the midst of all of this, continued to, to love other people and serve other people and disciple other people and evangelize other people. Even in the midst of all of the fears and the confusions and the questions and the pain to watch the way that she trusted God to keep her from stumbling. Last Thursday, she went to be with the Lord. And at her funeral, Mark, her husband, evidenced the way that God is even now keeping him from stumbling. So he stood up to do her her eulogy and and gave really one of the most courageous and gospel-centered eulogies I've I've really ever heard, particularly at, at your own wife's funeral. The way that he... He proclaimed the gospel that he he trusted and was still trusting. And even in the midst of all of these things, the Lord kept Marlene all the way home. And now he is keeping Mark, even in this new chapter where days will be dark and tears will be, be many. So I don't know what your dark day is, but I need you to hear this. That Jesus, the good shepherd, says in John 10, 28, that none will snatch you out of my hand. God is able to keep us. Keep us. There is nothing stronger than Him, not even the prospect of death. That means that we can take great courage in God's promise to keep us. Philippians 1.6 says that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. God is not like the sluggard in Proverbs who puts his hand in the dish but does not finish what he starts. That's not our God. He is able and willing to bring you home if you are his. Now, as we think about this promise that God is able to keep us from falling, I want to make clear that that doesn't mean that Jesus keeps Christians from ever sinning again. So after we become a Christian, we still do sin. Now it is true that God's God's word says in Romans 6 that we're we're free from sin and we don't have to obey it. And that we have the power of God within us us through his spirit to to resist temptation. But the reality is that that we as Christians still, still struggle with sin. Now that struggle over time we should see more victory and more victory because God is continuing to to change our hearts so we might love him more and love sin less. That should be be happening in us. But all the while, God is keeping us. He's preserving us. He's transforming us moment by moment, day by day, trusting him. See, the good news of the gospel is that grace isn't just for people who don't know Jesus, but... It's for we who do as well. That we continue to trust God even in the midst of whatever temptations come. God God uses us even fighting temptation to rely upon him and to keep us from stumbling. So listen to this this verse from 1 Corinthians 10, 13 about, about the way that we fight temptation by relying upon God to keep us. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. That means that in the midst of the temptations that call you to forsake Christ, to go back to the world that could lead to, to stumbling... God always gives a way out. And what this does for us is it highlights the important reality about the Christian life that our confidence in God's promises to keep us does many things for our soul, but it most certainly does not cancel out the very clear call for us to keep ourselves in God's love like we saw last week. We still have responsibility to engage and to trust as he keeps us. God's faithfulness must never inspire unfaithfulness on our part. God keeps us and we respond to him in faith by clinging to him.
So whatever it is that we face, you have to know that Jesus is stronger than the strongest sins. That his power is deeper than the deepest doubts. That his light is greater than the darkest depressions. And that his word is truer than the most deceptive of false teachers. He is able to keep you from falling. Now, a way to kind of apply this and encourage one another this week. Maybe find somebody in your family or somebody else from the church or just another Christian that you know and open up Psalm 121 and read through it together and listen to the words that God promises about his willingness to keep you as his child. Psalm 121, just write it down. I'm going to read, I'm just going to read a couple verses uh, now for you before we go on to our next promise. Psalm 121. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will not slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The whole psalm is like that. And I encourage you this week to take some time to think through that and to think through this promise together and spur one another on to trust Him. That that God, He will keep you. He will preserve you from stumbling. So that's the first promise that He makes to us. The second promise that we're going to look at here is that God promises to present us without fault. He promises to present us without fault. Look again at verse 24. To him who is able to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. So our our last promise highlighted the way that God is currently keeping us. But this promise calls our hearts to look to that final day when when we will meet our maker as it was. And I'm not sure if you, this is something that you're, you're aware of or not, but salvation, salvation for the Christian, when someone trusts in Christ's death and resurrection, they are saved. That's what happens. They're forgiven. They are saved. But the reality is that even now, God is continuing to save us. He's keeping us. We are still being saved. Even right now, that's what He's doing. He's saving you. But there's also a reality that is coming one day when He will save us. When He returns and He takes us to be with Him and brings us before His presence to enter into the new heaven and new earth, then salvation that is finished will be completely and fully experienced. So we have been saved. We are being saved. And by the grace of God and His promises, we we will be saved. And this second promise highlights, highlights that. The word translated here, present, in our text, comes with the idea of being able to make us stand. So the picture is this. Christ comes before the, the God the Father, and he, he is presented there as the righteous one, and he, he brings those who trust in Him, and He presents them before the Father, and He enables them to stand. Not because of how good they are, but because they are clothed in His righteousness. He he makes us to be able to stand in the presence of God. We are not consumed there. We are not condemned there. We are not rebuked there. We are not rejected there. Now, I, I don't know if you understand how amazing that idea is that one day you and I will stand before a holy, perfect glorious presence of God. I'm not sure if that, 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 I'm not sure if that registers for us, but, but that is not something that people can do in and of themselves. No one is worthy enough to make that stand. No one has that kind of moral resume. Nobody's goodness, good enough. Nobody's blameless enough. Nobody's pure enough. In fact, the Lord told Moses in Exodus 33, you cannot see my face For no one may see me and live. 
You can't see me and live because I'm that holy. I'm that glorious. Take some time later this this week to to read Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah, who is a prophet of God, is brought before um, God's holy presence before he begins his ministry. And he's there in this throne room where the mighty one is is high and lifted up on his throne. And there's these angels flying around with with wings that cover their their, their eyes and, and, and their feet. And then they fly because they're not able to look upon the Lord. And they're crying out, holy, holy, holy. And it says that the whole throne room is shaking. And then there's this Isaiah guy who's really one of the most righteous guys of his day. And he stands before this God. Does anybody remember what he says? He says, woe is me. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I I live among a people of unclean lips. Because all of a sudden, this pretty good guy is in the presence of a holy God. And what it does is it exposes him. And he's aware that everything that's come out of his mouth has been defiled by a wicked heart. And that everybody who's around him, everybody's condemned. Because God is absolutely perfect. He is holy. He is he's perfect. And we are not. Far from it. That's why when we come to this promise in Jude 24, we should be utterly amazed. We should be baffled and humbled that that we could stand before God blameless. Because just like no man can stand before the Son and not be consumed, so no human can stand before God and not be consumed. We are unclean. But that, that is why Christ came. He came to live a perfect life that we could never live with no sin at all. That's why he laid down his life as a spotless sacrifice for sins. Jesus died on the cross in our place because he had no sin. And he took our sin on himself. Then he rose from the dead. And now, anybody who will turn from their sin and trust in him, he gives them His righteousness. It's the great exchange. Jesus gets our sin. We get his righteousness. It's an amazing trade-off. And now he stands as our mediator and our intercessor. That's why we can now come to God. Listen to Hebrews 7.25. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to, to God through him since, this is why, He always lives to make intercession for them. The reason we can have the hope of coming before God is because Jesus is our mediator. So when God promises that he will present us without fault or blameless, it means that because of our faith in Christ, we will be clothed in his righteousness. His blood has cleansed us. His resurrection has justified us. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know what it's like for you to read words like that. Like, I'm not sure what that does to your heart, but I have not always been a Christian. I have not always been a pastor. And in my life before Christ, I did, I did some horrendous things. I hurt people. I betrayed people. I used people. I lied to people. I hated God. I mocked God. I used everything that he gave for myself. And then the reality is that even after I became a Christian, I could, I could tell you things that I've done even as a Christian. that are just repulsive. I'm, I'm not blameless. If you just look at my life, I am not. I'm not blameless. 
the hope of the Christian? The hope of the Christian is rooted in the one who was blameless. The one who, because of his grace, forgives. As far as the east is from the west, no sin for those who trust in Christ is remembered before the throne of a holy God. And there, there we stand blameless, forgiven, clothed in the impenetrable, uncorruptible righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is, that is good news. That is wonderful news. And what it all do is stir in us great joy. Because there's a joy now that we experience, but there's also a day that we're going to experience a joy like we've, we've never known. That day when we will see face to face our Lord. That great joy of verse 24. It's that same joy that, that propelled Jesus to trust the Father and to obey Him even to death. Listen to Hebrews 12.2. We're told to look to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Did you, did you hear that? The joy that was set before Him, the joy of the Father's presence, is what motivated Jesus to continue to to press on in faithfulness even to the cross, even to the grave. He knew that He would be with the Father again. So He would not give in to sin. But rather, He would trust the Lord because of the joy that was set before Him. And that same joy is what ought to stir our hearts to keep trusting and keep pressing and keep praising until we see Him face to face. But this is where you've got to realize that one of the, Satan's greatest, greatest efforts is focused on getting us to find joy somewhere else besides there. That's what he wants us to do all the time, to find joy somewhere other than, than there. Whether it be stocks or sex or sports or money or elections or celebrity news or the bottom of a bottle or the end of a blunt or whatever it may be. He wants, he wants us to find somewhere else to find joy. To tap out that aching of the heart for another home and another land. He wants to, he wants to pacify that with the joys in this life. Now I want to be really clear. I'm not the joy killer guy, okay? I'm all for, there's a lot of stuff in this life that we can find great joy in. Sherlock Holmes said, we have much to hope in because there's a God who makes flowers. Meaning, flowers don't do much except you look at them and you're like, oh, they're pretty. You know? I mean, that's what they do. And they, they stir our hearts to the realization that there's a God that makes sunsets and sunrises and lets people love one another and you feel fellowship and there's food that tastes good, and there's, there's smells that smell good. There's all kinds of things in this life that we should find great joy in. But all of that joy, all it's supposed to do is be a primer to point our hearts and to point our minds to the reality that there's a greater joy that awaits us. All of those little joys are supposed to be just like breads of crumbs on the path leading us to the presence of the Almighty God. That's what the joys of this life are intended to do. So have a blast. But remember why God gives us those joys. They're not an end in ourselves or itself. But rather, they're all road signs pointing home to that presence that we will never, never be taken away from. That is a great joy. So this God, and this God alone, is able to preserve us and to present us. He alone possesses the ability and the authority to make promises and to keep promises. So what does that mean for us? Finally, how should we respond to God's promises? 
Well, let's, let's hear these promises again, verse 24 and 25. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. What is the right response to God's promises? Well, certainly it's to trust them and to believe them and to order our lives around them. But, but all of that should be wrapped up in a life of praise. That what we see happening here in these two, two verses is, is praise. That God's glorious promises ought lead us to grateful praise. That's what should would come out of our heart if our mind is on them and all those things we've been thinking about. It, it should respond in, in, in praise. Now, to praise God simply means that we, we express truths about God and about what He's done and about what He's promised to do. We express that. We, we lift them up to Him in celebration. And as we read these promises, we see that they are indeed all wrapped up in praise. I mean, that's what he says. It's to him who does this. To him who does this. Because of this, this God, we, we proclaim that he is all-glorious, and he is all-majestic, and he is all-powerful, and he has all-authority. Now, I'm not sure about you, but, but, but prayers of praise for me are, are more difficult to pray than other kinds of prayers. So prayers of confession... Listen, if there's one thing I know, I'm all messed up, so I'm well aware. I can easily find ways that I have seen that I have strayed. Prayers of confession, by God's grace, are easier for me. Prayers of thanks, for some reason the Lord just litters my mind with marks of his faithfulness. You can look everywhere. If you have a hard time coming up with things that you're thankful for, get a piece of paper and make a list of a hundred things that you're thankful for. What you'll find is when you get to about five or six, you'll be like, oh gosh, what else is there? And then when you get going, by the end, you're going to need another sheet of paper. You'll just be, your eyes will be open to the reality that there's, there's tons to give God's thanks for. We're also well aware that we need stuff. So we come and we pray and we plead. But there's something about just stopping and giving God praise for who He is and what He's done and what He promises to do that I don't know about you, but for me, it's just, it, it can be a little bit trickier. So what we see in our text is, is he, the author does that, though. He gives him praise, attributing to him glory and majesty and power and authority. God possesses each of these qualities, and, and we don't give them to him. So when it says, to him be these things, we're not giving God something he doesn't have. So God's not up there getting more glorious because we praise him. But rather, he is who he is, and we respond to that. So... We, when, we, when we give him glory, it, means that we, it doesn't mean that we think, oh, God glows big. But rather, the word for glory, it means heavier weightiness. So when we, we think about who he is and his character, it should be weighty on our hearts. And it should lift up praise to God. You're glorious. You're, just, you're grand. You're, you're amazing. You are indeed you're, you're glorious. They also stir us to say that, that he, is, he has all majesty. This word for majesty, it, it highlights the idea that God is, he's king. He's the majestic ruler of heaven and earth. There's no king like him. There's no, there's no God that makes promises like him. There's no princes or presidents or anybody else who is worthy of this kind of, of majesty. To him alone deserves honor and majesty. We also praise him uh, because to him are power or dominion. That means that God is the sovereign ruler over everything. He has absolute and unmatched power. One of my favorite scenes is in the, the book of Revelation near the end when, when humanity has its, its final, final charge against God and they rally all of the armies of the earth, it says, and they come out to do battle with the Lord and it says, and the Lord rained down fire. And that was it. The, the greatest Efforts of humanity to revolt against God are done away with in a verse and a half. Like there's just nobody who can stand against him. 
That's why when other gods, in Psalm 2, when the, when, when the rulers revolt against him, it says that the Lord laughs. What are you going to do? I love it when God starts talking smack. And when you read through the prophets, he's always doing that. He's talking, he's talking noise to them. What are you going to do? Where's your idols now? It's just because there's nobody like him. He has all, all power and, and dominion. And because of that, we have confidence that he, as First Peter tells us, he has an inheritance that is being kept for us. That all of hell may try and steal it. And he says, keep your hands off. This is mine to give to my people. That same kind of keeping is what he's doing to us even now. He keeps us from stumbling. So he has all glory and majesty and power and, and finally, all authority. God has the authority to rule and reign over all things. He created it and he sustains it. It is all his. Abraham Kuyper famously said, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. So we praise God and say, it is all yours. And we trust you. And how long is all of this true of God? Well, notice there, before all ages, now and forevermore. Eternity past, history present, and eternity future. God does not change. So, what does that mean for us? It means that we, we are to be a people who look to this God who keeps His promises and that we, we trust Him. We t- trust Him that He will preserve us from falling and that He will present us faultless And because of that, we should praise him and find great joy in him and in him alone. And I pray that 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 is what will mark this church for as many years as the Lord gives us until he returns. So come soon, Lord Jesus. But until then, may we be a people who trust his promises. Amen? Father in heaven, we are grateful that you are the unchanging, everlasting, all-able, all-saving God, that you make promises and you keep promises, that you will preserve us and present us, and that the joy that is in your presence is unmatched and unparalleled. And I pray that you would make us a people who praise you for your glory and majesty and dominion and authority, that we would recognize those things are true about you, and ascribe them to you until the day we see you face to face, and then forevermore. Come soon, Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.